0: Welcome to Forum Borealis. Long-time listeners, you know I've always rejected prostituting the forum with the oh-so-popular subject of UFOs, with which I have no problem whatsoever calling UAPs, since that is a more descriptive term. And no, it wasn't Hillary Clinton who accepted it. She just took it and ran with it during her Sixteen campaign, on advice from her ufologist campaign manager, John Podesta, because they figured it would make her cool and get the UFO votes. But those of us around prior to Sixteen who paid any attention knew the term already then, and many of us used it, me included and the knee-jerk reaction of it, based on some irrational conspiracy hypothesis, that it somehow hurts the disclosure case, when in actual fact it has contributed to cleaning it up among the sleepwalking normies, and that it's tainted by the US government since they've used it in reports since at least the mid-60s, doesn't take into account that they also created the term UFO in the 50s. What's in a name? Except, phenomenon is more superior to object, seeing as not all of them are objects. Anyway, back to the original point I try to make. Despite my allergy to place myself within a huge ufology scene, mainly because there's a million of them already and it's very limited what we can contribute to it, If you have paid attention to our show topics this year, you'll notice that we have done no less than four on the subject. Well, in my defense, the reason is simple. Firstly, there's tons of new development in this field, warranting some paradigm expanding exploration. We cannot ignore it just because we don't want to exploit it. Second, much of the historic knowledge database on this seems to be bypassed and conveniently left out by the new hordes of pundits swarming to the field. And we will get nowhere if we're starting from scratch. So I feel it imperative to bring some refocus to the shoulders we've been standing on. Third, I have been tempted and teased by my colleague Alex Takiris, who has gone all the way down the ET alien rabbit hole and thinks I'm being a dinosaur, not throwing myself on this bandwagon. Fourth, it is now a clean and serious subject that can reach many more listeners of high strangeness and bring them into the fold of our show. And finally, the actual reason for the show today Ever since I started the forum, I've always had in mind doing at least one pure show on the topic. But not just any random focus, but specifically look into the science of how they function. Why? Apart from this being incredibly interesting and a much more worthy undertaking than just listening to endless anecdotal experiences or relish in speculation about how many heads grows on an alien from a zeta ridiculously, Because I wanted to honor a specific person. Namely, the very one who in the 2000s opened my eyes to the fact that we are surrounded by UAPs. Which he did through a docu called Evidence, the case for NASA UFOs. See, back in 95, at the request of Martin Stubbs, who video catalogued over 400 hours of live NASA broadcast missions, and professional photographer Michael Boyle, he joined them in conducting a deep scientific investigation into the NASA community and the many space shuttle mission footage of the 90s. As anyone who's seen this footage, and not being hypnotized to go back to sleep by the usual debunking attempts, these days calling themselves fact-checkers, but everyone else calls them fact-spinsters, has no choice than to conclude, as I did, that immediately above and below our perception range, it's teeming with intelligent life of some sort, which breaks the law of gravity with impunity. You will become dizzy from being exposed to this footage, so you'd be forgiven if you'd recoil to some desperate dismissal attempt without learning all the facts, proving that what you see is genuine. I cannot make the case for that in this brief show, but if you're seriously interested, I can point you to the findings of my guest tonight. Here's a teaser of our three-part
1: conversation. That's what builds the vortex in my galaxy clock model. When, when you connect the bond of all the real time seconds on the, on the wheels of my um, galaxy clock, it, it warps the fabric of space. And that ah, so it would, it would be like if you find the right octave, you can jump an octave, so to speak, if you- you're right. see yeah. you're not jumping on the light wave because that travels at the speed of light, right, but you're right. jumping on the time wave and the time wave warps the fabric of space, which is the root cause of gravity. It's the cause of it. Right. And so when you understand the cause of the gravity, you don't need to fight it with element 115 and go the other way and repel it Mm. because that is too expensive and it's super massive and you're going to cause severe damage. And we don't see any damage coming from these things. Here's the thing.
0: When you see this footage, it looks like fish in an aquarium. It just, and you keep referring to them as vehicles, but... To me, intuitively, it seems like they're organic
1: somehow. It seems like it's life. They really could be organic. They really could be living, massive, interplanetary stellar organisms that we don't know about. I'm not even convinced that the Tic Tacs could not possibly fall in the same category as some living thing. And the reason Mm. I believe that is, one, imagine if you're a true extraterrestrial and you discover this planet Earth. Wouldn't when you want to park and get out and say, hi, we're here. These things don't even communicate with our radio networks. They don't seem to be... Acknowledging us. To, acknowledging us in any way. And that's what fish do. Mm. I mean, fish under the water don't care about you. That could
0: also be the reason uh, our powers that be are so cocky towards them, that they know they are not posing a threat.
1: They're not posing a threat. They're doing. They're going about their business. Yeah. And... We don't have proof that there's even an occupant. They could be alive. Mm.
0: They could be. And that could also explain, you know, Jacques Vallée looks at some hypothesis that they are a part of a natural system. That could be why they are concerned with nuclear sites and stuff, because they have a function in in terms of keeping the ecosystem going.
1: Well, exactly. Just like a turtle has a function and a whale has a function, but they're not interested in us. Look, we know two interesting
0: things. We know, number one, Mm. that they started popping up, and mass after our first nuclear test explosions. Number two, we also know that they're interested in nuclear sites. Yep. Now, I'm thinking, okay, we may have had uh, had uh, these phenomenons here all the time, but this increased, this enormous mass of them, right. according to statistics and according to some footage. Could it be that they, uh, that we have opened some kind of portal inadvertently and they are spilling in here from that?
1: Well, yeah, I, I said this on Art Bell way back in the day of mm-hmm. Art Bell that when when we detonated the first atomic bomb at Trinity, New Mexico, July 22, 1945, actually three crashes appeared all around Trinity. So you have all these UFO crashes around the Trinity experiment. So obviously, a time dilation portal opened up with the intense uh, flash of gamma radiation. It's probably what did it. And then we saw the effects of that within a certain radius around... The, the incident of the atomic testing. So every time we started testing atomic bombs, we were opening portals, and they knew it. They knew that there was there was a problem going on with uh, us distorting the, the natural...
0: What was the mission of Colombo? I don't understand why that was so important to take out when they're not taking out the others.
1: Well, the, see, there's two things. When the space shuttle goes up, it has a classified military mission... Mm. I've really researched this deeply. and Then it has publicly available data missions where they're doing scientific experiments. So we don't know the classified mission and we don't know were they putting Star Wars weapons in space and whoever these beings are. And, and I suspect that these ETs have maintained bases on Earth for thousands of years.
0: Yeah, according to Stephen Greer, they are all the time experimenting with dangerous exotic weapons and they're putting them on our satellites. Any military that is surpassed technologically it's the prime job to take it seriously. Now, but we know that they know about this since at least the 50s, probably the 40s. And we also see that they don't have a care in the world. Our military is shooting at them all the time, following them. Yeah. There's no paranoia here. There's no fear here. Our our military is brazen, and I think the the only reason they can be that is that they know that generally they pose no immediate threat in that they are not going to shoot back or anything like that. So if they were, let's say, organic, or if they were from another dimension, and they were not people or humanoids from another planet coming here, you know, to colonize or to invade, etc. Then they could be this uh, brazen. But if they were actual spaceship, you know, 3D with people like us in them, then they would have to be much more paranoid
1: and uh, yeah, they would. afraid of them. The, the Greys is a harder subject because... A lot of your abduction cases are probably non-physical. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. So there's no doubt that there's correlations between ancient tribal peoples of Africa and Australia and the grays as a phenomenon behind sleep or in the dream state, or also with the use of, of certain plant-based or chemical-based consciousness altering substances. So I'm not I can't say that I believe the grays are necessarily a purely physical being. I also understand the, you know color and light very well. Like everything's gray until you have sunlight, right? Mm. So that means what I'm saying is when people see grays in this very low-light environment, it doesn't necessarily mean they're gray. If you look at a dolphin's skin up close, the dolphin has these little sparkles of color in their gray. So mm. we don't really know what a gray really is, would look like in sunlight. We don't really know. But to, to assume that all aliens are grays... I mean, if you read Zechariah Sitchin's work, there were beings described that looked like greys that were actually AIs, and they did tasks, right? They did mining. Mm. You can get AI to build cars and build spaceships in the future. So,
0: Yeah, biological robots has been suggested for them. But, Sir. you know, uh, the, the interesting thing is that... Uh, we have these machine elves that they are called oh. and other words for them that people see in higher consciousness states that also look, uh, appear like they are robots of some sort. Right. So we know that the consciousness can move up in frequency and down in frequency. Right. Now, if a entity does it, then when it lowers its frequency, it would start eventually to materialize, as we would say, right? We could start to sense it. We could start to measure it. The energy uh, would have to do some kind of uh, atomic bindings in order to uh, sustain a vehicle, a body uh, uh, in this 3D. Right. So, but who's to say that these are not the same as the elves, the angels, the spirits of, of ancient lore?
1: And that, that's what Graham Hancock is saying in Visionary, because he goes right. into the fairies, the fairy circles and the idea of a circle as a vortex or a portal, and that a UFO itself might actually be an energy field, and it's, it's a portal. NASA's cameras, again, those particular cameras could see near and ultraviolet photons, but NASA had also cameras that could see very specific areas of the, of the infrared bands as well. So if you see everything as energy, you also have to understand the human brain our brain waves are actually electromagnetic. They're very weak in amplitude, but they are electromagnetic waves. What's amazing, when you measure a 7.83 hertz brain wave, it's the size of the Earth. That's how big that wave is. So a, when, when humans are really relaxed, we're tapped into Gaia. Our, our wavelength of our brain at that frequency. In a meditative state is equal to the size of the earth. So we slip into the entire earth field. So that's the potential of the human consciousness. So when you're wow. if you can be conscious in delta when the brain is at one hertz, you're in a massive wave. It's not as big as Jupiter, but you're you're somewhere between Earth and Jupiter in the size of the consciousness of the wave that you're tuned into you know what i just realized david Th- that means that
0: our consciousness potentially can reach far beyond earth meaning it can reach that mysterious area where stuff is happening what did you call it ignorosphere
1: <laughs> the ignore oh you're yeah yeah at that wavelength you're, you're definitely way pa- actually it'd be interesting to do a. no wonder we can interact with the uaps up there consciousness right because in your sleep Exactly. When you go lower in frequency than the wavelength of Earth, you're in the atmosphere around the Earth. And that's why I think these where these abductions are happening. Mm. They're happening in, in consciousness, mm. are trapped in time. But if you go,
0: if you can find a way to passage directly into the inner circle, and then the one within there, and then the one within there, is that how we envision that, you know, they, they are skipping the, the time uh, limit?
1: Well, see you're you're getting close. So what's actually happening is all wave seconds that are real wave peak seconds that are peaking at the same exact time are bonded right. by what's called the quantum entanglement. Each second is entangled with each other. So
0: there's a connection point between them.
1: There's a connection point, right. Right. So as you go on the clock, let's go to position number five. Mm-hmm. You'll see that the space time is curving now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When you connect all your seconds, and that's exactly what Einstein says causes gravity. The curvature of space-time is gravity itself. Because you'll see that as you come in, in closer and closer to the center of the Milky Way galaxy, which are smaller and smaller wheels, that they're all bonded, connected, and you see the spiral forming of the great galactic arm. They're bonded and tangled, and that bond is what's warping the fabric of space to cause gravity to be born. Uh,
0: I just realized that you can actually um, slip not just through time, but also through space. And when you go into one point in time, you're going to come out at the other equivalent to that point in time, but in another place in time. And the same in space, right? That some places are connected to other places, like portals.
1: Right. That's exactly what this says. And this explains Einstein's action at a distance, which... Three Nobel Prize winners just won the Nobel Prize for, right. which is really radical, yeah. to win the Nobel Prize for this. But, but
0: isn't it suspicious that there's no sound? I
1: don't, well, There's no, not only no sound, which means there's no drive. They don't make any sound. And you'll see, watch this, you'll see David Mason, the interview I did with him, he has these temperature-reading infrared cameras that when they see the UAPs, They can record their temperature and their temperature is ultra cold, colder than background by far. They're colder than background. So that means the only thing we know that's super cold are superconducting magnets are super, super cold. Now, a little warning. I know we took off
0: for a while with humongous guest presentations and I did hear your complaints and cut it down to less than half. However, my guest tonight deserves to be honoured with a thorough introduction. Both as a kudos to having smashed down my own blinders, but also because he is one of the greatest minds in modern ufology, having had higher costs than profits from his activism on many levels. People like him just don't come along on a regular basis. So personally, I find it very interesting to learn his journey. But if you just want to get to the red meat, feel free to fast forward. Otherwise, lean back and get to know him. David Brian Cerida is an inventor, filmmaker, author, public speaker, ufologist and coach who's worked deeply in high technology on environmental and humanitarian issues and as a professional photographer for over 20 years. Originally from Canada, he grew up in California where he as a 7-year-old was part of a mass UFO sighting which literally vanished in a split second into another dimension, which would take him until the year 2000 to understand. This obviously influenced his life choices and triggered vivid and illuminating dreams. Consequently, he became a fan of the Apollo programs and wanted to become an astronaut. He did take physics in school to the college level, which he continued as an autodidact, remaining unbound by educational standards. When he presented his physics teacher a time dilation theory, the latter exclaimed it was way beyond anything he had seen since Einstein. Apart from physics, his educational journey has been immersed into astronomy, math, natural science, ecology, world religions philosophy, parapsychology, meditation, yoga, vegetarianism, ancient history, photography, screenwriting, art, music, and zero-point energies for over 40 years. In 1979, he became a professional photographer and ecologist. He worked in part-time reforestation during the next decades. In this period, he also worked with oil spill and cleanup. In 90, he teamed up with MIT nuclear physicist Dr. Bogdan Maglik, inventor of MIGMA fusion in 69, to promote and fund non-radioactive fusion power technology, which he would study for a decade. On their long cooperation, Cerida says, I worked with the most brilliant nuclear power plant and nuclear scientists in the history of this country, also in the field of nuclear fusion first working for his Advanced Physics Corporation with years of nuclear fusion research and development, raising capital and business education of clean fusion power, and as NASA correspondent. He was also appointed as director of the Tesla Foundation, under which he became an expert in Tesla technology and science for a cleaner, sustainable environment, and kept promoting eco-friendly scientific discoveries, including breakthroughs in non-radioactive nuclear energy, solar power, and hydrogen fuel techs. As director, he even attended many protests against pollution of oceans and nature. In 92, he became president of the Green and Blue Corporation, an eco-venture capital company funded by a wealthy Saudi investor. The company represented many of the top scientific corporations with tech to revolutionary energy fuel and environmental cleanup to investors all over the world. In 1994, he was invited, amongst many leading scientists, to speak in Congress on nuclear fusion technology in a debate between government-funded radioactive nuclear fusion and privately-funded non-radioactive fusion. Congress decided to fund radioactive fusion, but refused to fund privately developed non-radioactive efforts, despite support and pressure from a panel of Nobel Prize and other award-winning physicists. In 96, Maglish appointed him as president of High Energy Micro Devices, a U.S. defense contractor using novel technology to detect buried landmines and find hidden explosives and other contraband. He did all of the US military correspondence and tech consulting about the contracts and accounts, including US Customs and the Coast Guard. From ninety eight to two thousand he also worked for Oilgator to market their revolutionary oil spill cleanup tech using organic bioremediation from cottonseed lint fibers. Apart from hard science, he was also having incredible spiritual experiences. In parallel with writing numerous papers and articles in this period, he also published his first book in ninety eight, called Face to Face with Jesus Christ, Apparitions to a Modern Visionary, where he details many paranormal encounters and illuminations. In 2000, David Cerida co-founded the Native Elders Video Library, Archives, a non-profit foundation developing a library of Native American Indian elders, oral teachings and wisdom. The new millennium brought him a new life phase as he returned to his photographer roots, took up filmmaking and created some cutting-edge documentaries on UFOs and the tech involved. The results of the aforementioned NASA investigation led to the book and docufilms titled Evidence the Case for NASA UFOs released in 02, which is the primary focus of our show tonight. He continued making scientific cases for the UFO Tech in Visitors The California UFO Wave in 04, Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs in 05 and From here to Andromeda in 07, which would be his last pure UFO film. In 06, he published another book called Singularity, which is his cosmological take on existentialism. The same year, he developed a technology not unlike a small nuclear fusion chamber to fuse frequency programs into crystals. After he discovered that these frequencies could be stored in a crystal lattice, he launched experimental pendants treated with this tech where thousands wore them and experienced the vibrations, also confirmed by human energy field aura camera testing. In 07, together with some co-authors, he published the book The Secret of Sustainability, Stories and Solutions from People Who Invent, Build, Live It. The same year... To develop his new tech designs, he started Lightstream Technologies together with his wife, providing handcrafted items processed with Lightstream tech. In 08, he published his paper on harmonics and zero-point energy called "Differentials: The Hidden Harmonic Codes of the Universe." On the movie side, the topics became more spiritualized with quantum communication in 09. Then. The Voice, The Cosmos and the Quantum Universe, in 10, and then in 11, applying his talents as geometrician and codebreaker, digging beyond the Da Vinci code with the film and book titled Mona Lisa's Little Secret. And finally in 13, his so far latest, a beautiful piece called Hope for Humanity, documenting Schult prodigies. All of his movies have been picked up by Gaia TV, Amazon and other streaming services. With his wife, they not only created movies and books together, but also enjoyed composing elevated music for film and meditation. Plus, self-empowering programs called Bliss Consciousness, with particular emphasis on frequency, sound and toning meditations. And their audio and video course called Quantum Regenesis. As fate would have it, David Cerida's films have had hundreds of millions of views, but... With scarce profit, as they were among the most pirated in the peak era of pirated productions. He said about this, What I realized about filmmaking is that people do not want to pay to watch your film. What I also realized from it talking to book publishers is that due to the internet, reading is way down. People do not read books anymore in mass numbers. Book sales are at all-time lows. People want free information. So, as an idealist, he experimented with crowd funding films and research projects, but due to the recession, it was not sustainable. Instead, he focused on his inventor skills, continuing researching frequencies with the particular aim of turning this science into practical application benefiting the users. When ready to launch several innovative products, the Cerida set up a company in 09 with natural tech developed to imprint frequencies into jewelry and crystals. In '14, the Cerida's moved back to Canada. The same year, his interview except with aerospace engineer Boyd Bushman, inventor of the supersonic jet, who was a big shot in Lockheed Martin's skunk works and held top-secret clearance, went viral and caused sensations in the tabloid press. In 15, he cracked a hard code digging into base 7 math, geometry, the pyramid, and much more, of which details he published in his 16 book, God's Great Pyramid. In 17, his wife became hospitalized and would suffer ongoing health problems, leaving David little time but to run their small family business while taking care of his family. Then, tragedy struck in 21, when his wife of 18 years, Crystal Elena Frost Cerida, passed away. David has been a frequent keynote speaker on various conferences and has been featured in innumerable TV series, movies, radio shows and documentaries, either as an expert guest or as a professional production contributor. Obviously too many to list, but some noteworthy outlets are Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell and also with George Norrie, Jimmy Church, Shirley MacLaine, Alan Handelman, John Wells, Richard Hoagland's Other Side of Midnight, Alan Eisenberg, Dr. G. Live, CNN, Anderson Cooper, TLC, History Channel, Fox News, Fox TV, Ancient Aliens, and Peter Jennings, Seeing is Believing. And finally, some fun facts about our guest. David studied with Dalai Lama in India. He personally hand-planted over a million trees over 22 years. Has demonstrated reverse-engineered UFO tech has skydiving, skiing and animals as hobbies, had a 12-year close friendship with Boyd Bushman, worked closely with him on space propulsion tech research and development for five years, was in private partnership with NASA scientists on research and education on UAPs, Dan Aykroyd introduced him to his wife, who was a professional opera and jazz singer, has created a new harmonic musical scale called Scale of Life. And today, I'll pick his brain on as much as possible of this ocean of knowledge that he has attained and unlocked, well, at least some of the, to me, most interesting highlights. It's warp time.
1: Welcome to Forum Borealis, David. Thank you, Al. It's uh, good to be here. Um, You know, we were just talking, and it's funny, I mean... So the world has gotten very diluted and people are looking at so much stuff. Yeah, UFOlogy has gotten immensely competitive because it suddenly went mainstream with the New York Times and the UAP Navy pilot testimony, the congressional hearing recently, and now NASA forming a new organization to research UFOs. Exactly. So everybody's fighting to get in there and, and the people are not very... They do not, well, do not work well with others is what I would stamp on almost every ufologist's head right now. It's true. So we're going to get to all that. Yeah. So basically, uh, the
0: main thing is I want to talk with you about NASA UFOs. And I've been a fan of you uh, since back in the day when you were super active. But this isn't going to be like uh, when you talk with George Norrie. He asks a one-liner, and then he gets a lecture in reply. We're more like Joe Rogan. Yeah,
1: you don't need to do that, yeah.
0: Now, I will step back and let you fill it, but uh, sometimes my questions can be, or comments can be, uh, you know, sentences and reasonings that I want you to... Sure, yeah, just...
1: Just, you know, basically with me, you just got to kind of cut in when you want to. Don't worry about (laughs) it. Okay. That's great. Because that's how, you know, I watched um, Graham Hancock on Joe Rogan with two other guys, and they were fighting. It was great.
0: (laughs) But uh, Hancock is more like you. He has a lot to say. I know you're a no-nonsense guy. I've been following Well. I know. And I know you talk super fast.
1: I'm a no-nonsense guy. I've got a lot to say on this new UAP stuff. Yeah. You know, I it goes. I go back to 1999 is when I started, yeah. right. And you've been off the scene for a
0: while, right? And all the new people.
1: No, I've been very busy. I've been on Richard Hoagland's show. I do George Norrie about once a year. I've been regular on Sasha Stone's platform and also, um, uh, what's it called? Rex Bear, Leak Project, Carrie Cassidy is very current with me. Um, but, as far as i haven 't attended physical conferences, I turned down ancient aliens twice, and because of my kids and my wife passing yeah. so i'm i 'm a full time dad right with a twelve and a seven year old so
0: yeah, my condolences by the way really too bad yeah but li- that 's life for you um and also some of those you mentioned to me uh, that you usually are on are kind of, for example, I love Hogland. Had him on my show, been a big fan. But he caters to another audience, the old school audience, the radio audience. And especially the UAP phenomenon has been seized now by many new generations. And it's become a uh, house clean, right? So everybody is into it. Mm-hmm. And you would expect that the old gurus in the field would be consulted, but no. They are bypassed. And in comes these new spin doctors. Mm-hmm. But I want to rewind the clock, David. Okay. I have to kudos you. I, I told you this in the mail. You are single-handedly responsible for me waking up to the UAP phenomenon. Wow. And the way you did that is by your excellent, because as people heard in the introduction, although you are a jack of many trades, you are basically a Mm -hmm. filmmaker. You have a lot of great films on your, your conscience and evidence the case for NASA UFOs blew my mind. Right. And I want to start our UAP discussion with that phenomenon. And my first question to you is, how on earth did you discover that? Why did you decide to make a film about that?
1: Well, you know, I was um, a photographer in school, a master black and white printer. I won awards in the high school as best photographer. And I knew everything about cameras and well, I grew, I'm Canadian, but our family moved to Berkeley, California in about 1965. And in 1967 or 68, I saw a UFO with a crowd of people on the street down nice and low where you could really see the saucer shape, you know, the sun shining off the, the metal surface. Okay. Um, and, and so basically when I got a hold of some footage from a guy named Martin Stubb, through a mutual friend of ours named Michael and he you know the first thing I noticed is NASA's cameras were looking in invisible wavelengths of light and and they would take an off-the-shelf video camera and use special CCDs and they could see near and far ultraviolet as well as well as some very deep levels of the infrared and that really interested me and so that's how I started getting into this so when you saw
0: this footage because although you're analyzing different footage, it's all leaks from NASA TV It was before they had the wits to to put in a buffer and start censoring and the most famous incident I believe that's referred to as the Tether incident, what did you think when you saw that and why would you want to make a movie about
1: that? Well again, because I knew how cameras work and believe me, a, a lot of amateurs have tried to disprove the Tether, but you see The way a CCD camera works is that when the lens is in focus, the depth of field of focus, which is how deep your focus field is, is is way beyond an ordinary SLR camera, right? So Mm. if you go to f22 as an f-stop on an SLR, you've got pretty good depth of field. If you have a wide angle lens, It's quite good, although objects getting too close to the camera will appear out of focus at the same time when you're focused on something distant. But with a CCD camera, you can, and I demonstrated this in the film, I can hang a dime in front of the lens and see the background in focus at the same time. So when critics, and because I had access to people at NASA... I was dealing with three physicists there in in an argument on the optics of the cameras, Joseph the third, the head of the astrochemistry branch. I also knew Earl van Lanningham, Director of Propulsion, Power, and Energy at NASA because I worked for a group of physicists on nuclear fusion that got me into that arena right mm-hmm. so so basically. Um, using my contacts at NASA, we started debating, and they started telling me more and more about the cameras. And And so, when people said, Oh, those are just out of focus disks, what are called airy disks, I said, No, they're not. Because there's a scene where Claude Nicole here, one of the astronauts who's operating the camera, says, I can't adjust the focus any better than that. And he zooms in this long zoom, yeah. and the objects remain. Um, to be uh, these disks that are moving all at different velocities and uh, pulsing and pulsating. And if you had near field debris, as Joseph Newt Third contended and argued, the, the camera would zoom right through that and you wouldn't even actually... You wouldn't see pieces of dust in a long a long zoom like that, right? They wouldn't survive a long zoom like that. But, but that's because you're zooming past them. However, when the camera is unzoomed, you could see a piece of dust floating near the camera lens. And it wouldn't be an airy disk. It would look like dust. And and then, you know, the, the space environment is so clean. Yeah. Other than suppose that ice crystals forming on very rare water dumps on the shuttle, which are very rare, you you would you would see a real mess of of debris, and and, and the way debris de- behaves in, in in a thrust ejection is not the way these things behaved.
0: No, 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 not at all. And there is an epic scene. In your documentary where you show, you demonstrate clearly that these are going behind the tether. I, I call them Pac-Mans because,
1: <laughs> they, honestly... Yeah, they look like, like Pac-Men, <laughs> right? So, when, again, the tether, and I learned this from Joseph Newton III. In fact, I wrote a book on this because mm-hmm. the book is much more detailed in the debate going back and forth. And the reason the tether appears so thick is the tether, which is a Nomex, you know, cable that was used to try and capture energy in the Earth's electric field, dragging it through the Earth's electric field to produce energy for experiments on, on the space shuttle and also the space station. It produced way more energy than their physics calculations demonstrated. It broke. Ah. And then the the satellite at the end of the antenna drifts away and it's, there's nobody on it, there's nobody controlling the knobs, and suddenly the um, nitrogen tank is emptied, and the nitrogen becomes ionized in the electric field of the earth, and that's, so you get this neon tube, it's about, um, I think the thickness would be about a quarter mile thick, that's a pretty thick, right, Five thousand two hundred eighty mile, that's a pretty thick tube, so it's 12 miles long, so you have this perfect ruler, and you can see these things going behind, going behind, going behind. And that means they're bigger than than they could possibly imagine, because their minimum diameters would be anywhere between a half a mile and and um, and two to three miles wide, because we don't know how far behind the tether they are, mm-hmm. but they're 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 pulsating, and in fact you know i I'm in Maui, Hawaii, and my friend Steve gets this phenomenal v c r because we had v h s tapes of these. <laughs>
0: Yes, this is back in the day.
1: Yeah, we're going frame by frame, and, and with really good contrast, we couldn't see a vortex coming out of the black hole that has real structure. Now, here's what's interesting about the vortex, is had they really been airy disks, which are caused by this out-of-focus phenomenon, yep. um, so had they been airy disks, then you wouldn't see the vortex structure at all. It would be mush, Mm. And it's amazing because people on um, on this one History Channel show thought they had disproved yeah, yeah. what these things are by this video test and mm-hmm. and you have to understand all pinpoint light sources to a camera, so when a lot of people are looking at nighttime like Stephen Greer's group and they think everything that's moving out there is a UFO or a UAP and and all pinpoint light sources as as UFOs would emit light in the visible and invisible, potentially simultaneously. Now, what's interesting about these guys? They don't emit in the visible at all. So, if if it wasn't for the
0: infrared filter, we wouldn't be able to see anything on that.
1: Ultraviolet, ultraviolet near and far filter, and you see ultraviolet is near, far, and extreme. Now, now Joseph Newt the third confirmed these cameras could see the near and the far UV. So that means that the optical cameras seeing visible light saw nothing, and that means they're not what they're arguing. They're only showing up in the invisible spectrum. So then
0: I said... Hang on, David. You are saying UV, not infrared, because if it's UV... That means that their frequency is above the limit of the range of human vision. But if they are below, if they are infrared and below, then the vibration is lower. You see what I mean? This is a crucial. Well,
1: it's trickier than that. I'll tell you why. So imagine mm-hmm. you're taking a shower and you've got this a hot shower and you've got steam on the glass, mm-hmm. right? And so because of a certain amount of of moisture in the air. If I use, because ultraviolet light is hotter than infrared light, for example. Okay. Yeah. right? Right. The higher the frequency of the light, the higher the temperature and the more the energy. So, right. So I can be a UFO vibrating in a really high frequency domain and transfer energy to the very weak background of space and leave a temperature signature there that an infrared camera could pick up. And it would look ghost-like, but yet it's only seeing an impression. Just like if I ah. put my finger on the steamed glass in the shower, I, right. just for a while, this impression is there. And again, the fact that they weren't detectable in the optical range, the normal optical cameras, means we're not looking at space junk, we're not looking at debris.
0: No, a water, and then, or dust.
1: Yeah, and... It gets more amazing because I sent the tapes to a physicist named Louis A. Frank um, at the University of of, um, Wisconsin, and he's a NASA scientist, a Van Allen Carver professor of physics, and he had already, on certain satellites that were sensitive in the near and far UV, was was seeing these ghost-like apparitions that he believed were made of water, depositing themselves into the upper atmosphere of the earth and he took a lot of heat at NASA for this, but he swore that 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 he had data that these these ghost like you know moist yeah. um, balls of water that only showed up in the UV. So imagine water, which is hydrogen and oxygen vibrating at such a high frequency that it's not visible in the visible wavelengths of light. And when he looked at the tapes, he wrote me back and he said, I've never seen video footage of these same things, but this is like what he's been um, detecting on various satellites. And what interests me about Frank's data is he said they were randomly depositing into the atmosphere like raindrops, but yet not one of them had ever hit a satellite Or a space shuttle, which would mean there would have to be some kind of intelligence Mm -hmm. in order for them to circumnavigate all those satellites we have out there, right? Because Mm -hmm. these were solid balls of water with density that would, at the velocity he said they were... Moving would destroy the satellites. This this little
0: tangent is is important to discuss now because when I saw that in your documentary, I was thinking. You remember the the hysteria around the ozone layer? Yeah. Now that just went away. Somehow the ozone layer has magically
1: uh, filled itself. Couldn't this explain? That's a great observation you're having because ozone is O three and 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 basically water is O2 right it H2O so you you could with these with these objects that Frank detected you could fill the ozone layer exactly you could I,
0: i'm not one for like cheering on saviors from outer space but but i mean if it is an intelligence and they do have water and we are are screwing up our ozone layer i mean it's simple math, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, nobody nobody
1: came out and told
0: us what happened to the ocean layer. How come it's healed?
1: See, that's the problem again with mains. Like right now, you've got A lot of people that are very aggressive in UFOlogy who are making films and some of them really don't know what they're doing. And some of them are frankly lying to us. Like Mm. when I saw Jeremy Corbell's film on Bob Lazar, there's this scene where federal agents are coming and In the movie, he makes it look like they're there because he has this secret material element one one five. And and that was a complete fabrication, and and he was deceiving his audience, and you don't do that in mm. journalism, right? You, so, just for out of curiosity, do you think the Bob Lazar story is a red herring? Well, my my thoughts on Lazar. Okay, so this is really quite amazing. So when I'm I'm working for the Advanced Physics Corporation on nuclear fusion, I have access to Glenn Seaborg, who chaired the Atomic Energy Commission under Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. And Bogdan Maglic, an MIT physicist, and and Seaborg's assistant Albert Giorso, who's one of the most brilliant hunters for supermassive heavy particles, we're all having this meeting at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab up on the up on the hill in Berkeley, above the campus where I grew up, and I I decided to tell Seaborg, and this is the man who authorized all the nuclear testing in Nevada, and 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 was in control of the entire atomic. Um, development. He won the Nobel Prize with Macmillan for the discovery of plutonium. So, mm-hmm. a major guy, right? You're right? So, I'm telling him about my UFO sighting in Berkeley in 1968, and and you, you just can't imagine. Like, C-Borg C- got a particle named after him, the seaborgium, C- and and uh, Giorso got a particle named after him. So, they're getting closer and closer to 115, is what I'm saying. So, mm. after I told them about my flying saucer sighting when I grew up in the in the Berkeley campus and my dad was getting a PhD in psychology in the 60s. Seaborg looked at me and he said that that if you have anti-gravity and you're canceling out gravity and inertia, it doesn't take energy to propel a craft because a tiny discharge would send you going the speed of light and beyond because you don't have there's nothing stopping you Mm -hmm. so he said you would have an energy source beyond nuclear fusion and he said we don't have anything like that yet and giorso tells me that seaborg has access to 37 levels above top secret during the meeting and seaborg is perplexed right Mm So years later at a, at a UFO conference with Bob Brown in in Nevada, I'm approached by a man in an elevator and he said, you know, I work at the, the Berkeley National Lab in the space lab. And in 1972, we all saw a UFO up close right outside the, the big windows. So, again, that goes in tandem with the theory that these ETs or whoever they are are watching our nuclear yeah developments because this is one of the biggest labs in America. Livermore is over the hill and the Berkeley lab is is a major major uh, lab. So I decided to tell Seaborg about Bob Lazar and his element 115. There I am. And it was funny because on Facebook before jerry McCorbell was releasing his movie on Nazar, I was telling Jeremy about 115, and I said, that's the real story, and he's freaking arguing with me, like he doesn't know anything about it, and he, he, the guy hated me, and I'm like <laughs> I, you just gotta research the 115, because that's the story and he finally puts it in the movie, and he doesn't even mention me that I'm fighting with him on Facebook to say you gotta, you gotta go deeper into 115, but here's what I think about 115, I don't believe Lazar interested the U.S. military at all. They brought this – think of how young the guy was at the mm. time. He's only two years older than me. I'm 61. He's like 63. So imagine at the date he's giving us, the guy was just freaking a, a junior. In, what Was what, he in his 20s? He would have been in college, like a young college kid. Mm. So – they probably brought him in because they thought he might have some interesting ideas and i think his interpretation of the data did not interest them because if it did they would have locked him up and never let him out of there yeah mm. and they and they they let him go and and here's what i think i mean i know a lot about about physics and and i took physics in my school days to the college level and studied it on my own and ended up working for the most major physicists in the world, you know, it's around Murray Gell-Mann, Bogdan Maggich, Seaborg, and so many others, Norman Rostocker, and what I believe is the purpose of 115 has nothing to do with gravity, because a massive gravity wave due to a massive particle would destroy everything in its path. And the shock wave behind these craft, if they're throwing gravity waves around, would destroy everything in their path. And they don't. Mm. So, th- the purpose of 115, which only needs to exist for a billionth of a second, is to open a portal. Mm. It- its discharge is so powerful that when you understand what we call micro black holes, you don't need a big black hole to send a spaceship through it. You just need a tiny one. Mm. And it only has to exist for a fraction of a second. And that, in my interpretation of the data, is the purpose of 115. It has nothing to do with thrust. Because once, remember, once what Seaborg said is once you've canceled gravity and inertia, it doesn't take massive energy to go anywhere. Mm. But if you want to get out of physical space and go into hyperspace, mm. which is where these things really move. Yeah, the Einstein-Rosen bridge, right? Yeah, no, no, it's not even an Einstein-Rosen bridge. It's they are literally go, you don't need to, you know, if you look at Kip Thorne's calculations on black holes and and folding space and time, and an Einstein-Rosen bridge, the, the amount of energy required is the negative energy of, of 100, that's right. 100 million suns. That's right. And you can't do mm. that. So that's not what they're doing. Again, what they're doing is once they first attain this zero-mass state, when a zero-mass wormhole – Doesn't cost you very much energy. You only need the one one five for a billionth of a second, and you're in hyperspace. Once you're in hyperspace, you can move. You're free to move about the country. (laughs) This is what I would say. Right.
0: Yeah. And didn't you write a treatise on anti gravity? I think I saw a PDF floating about the internet ages ago, where you try to explain how these vehicles, if indeed they are vehicles, could counter uh, the gravitation. Did I misunderstand or did you do that?
1: Well, I wrote I wrote one it's a PDF it's called singularity and it it's a it's not like the AI singularity it it's it's what are what are known as singularities non-dual energy fields. And and they were discovered by Paul Dirac, the Nobel prize winning physicist. <laughs> where Dirac discovers when he strips a pair of electron positrons off an atom's nucleus they they spin into kind of a black a mini black hole and disappear and he follows them and he believes they're going into this sea of, of pure negativity, meaning see all particles are bound in negative and positive charges. Yeah, they're dual. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's dual. A tau, an anti tau, neutrino. Mm. Everything has But not photons. Photons don't have an antiparticle. It's very interesting. Yeah. They're they're positively charged, but there's there's a theory that you might have negative light, which, which could impede on, on light to keep it at a certain – at its known you – know, It sounds very fishy. Uh, well, I it's, mean, it's a yeah.
0: hypothesis, but I don't see anything in nature confirming that. Right. If if you use the association, the metaphorical principle, right, light and darkness, one is an absence of existence, one is pure existence. I believe the ancients were right when they said that fire is the primordial cause. But, but go on with your reasoning
1: anyway. Okay. So when we come to the Navy pilot testimony, when this da- data comes out, and, yep. and I get a hold of the footage and bring it into my editing bay in Final Cut Pro, and I, I go frame by frame, which nobody's done, yeah. and and I'm seeing things in the frames that are mind blowing. I mean, yeah. I have pictures of this, yeah. and and I'm going, okay, first of all. I want to know the exact velocity of these objects, and I need to look at the radar data. and And one of the things I've argued for in this movement, which nobody has done, is what's called a performance chart. So, how fast does David Fravor's you know um, plane, his fighter jet, go? Well, they peak at around fifteen hundred miles an hour. They rarely go faster. Which, of course, they don't usually break the sound barrier in. In battle, actually, I mean that that uses a lot of fuel, and it's they're they're, they're not really going that fast. These planes, it's amazing mm-hmm. where they're traveling. So when I got, I looked at all the the, the sightings of the radar data, and this is quite shocking because th- there's contradictions in the data in the radar data. One piece of data came from. Tom DeLong in People Magazine said the UAPs on radar were, were tracked above eighty thousand feet to sea level in 0.78 seconds, and that because it's over eighty thousand feet is 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 getting close to seventy thousand miles an hour, seventy thousand miles an hour. Mm-hmm. But then you get another another Kevin, you know, day the radar operator saying they went from above eighty thousand feet to 20,000 feet mm-hmm. in 0.7 seconds. And and then, you know, 5,280 feet in a mile, you do the math and you're like, okay, so that puts you at, at 25, 20, you know, again, and they say above 80,000 feet. So it could be in the 23 to, to 28,000 mile an hour range. But then, but then you see it again. I I, I heard Louis Alzando in a private video meeting with me and and Bobby Kennedy Jr. Junior. um, And and in this meeting, Alessandro said, no, it went from above 80,000 feet to the deck to the surface of the ocean in 0.78 seconds. And again, that's getting close to 70,000 miles an hour. But then again, David Fravor goes on the record on this Netflix series on UFOs saying they had tracked a UAP jumping 60 miles in in, in a second, and that's, that's 216,000 miles an hour.
0: Mm.
1: Now, again, it, 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 it may seem really fast, but I'm, I'm going to take you forward to something that is unimaginable. Mm-hmm. First of all, due to drag, which is the pressure of the air envelope on the wings of a fighter jet and an airplane, you can't get anywhere near those speeds without the heat incinerating the, the the air vehicle it would incinerate it so that would mean the UAPs must be jumping in and out of the, the what we call the physical space into hyperspace and popping back in again when hmm. they get to the destination
0: so, so when they just disappear it's not that they are physically moving fast in one direction it's that they're jumping into these small holes
1: right there, it's Okay, it's like two fish under the water, and you're in, you're in L.A. at the beach in Santa Monica, and mm. you're going to have a race, and you're going to go to Hawaii and see who gets there first. Now, if the two fish wag their tails, it's probably going to take them a month to get to Maui, <laughs> right? Yeah. But one fish gets caught by a fishing pole, and he flies out of the water, and he gets <laughs> on a plane, and he goes to Maui in three hours, and he's sitting on the beach. <laughs> and his buddy gets there a month later and the other guy saying, I've been here a freaking mu- month. Man. Right, right. And, okay, so to the fish... So, so the water, wait,
0: wait a minute. So we actually have to take into account uh, another dimension then.
1: Right. Mm. See where the density of what you're moving through gets lighter and lighter they're like strata and and we're like fish under the water remember mm. we're made of water we're 87 percent water mm. and and so is a bear and so is a squirrel and and so is a fish for that matter so they're we're actually underwater and the speed of light underwater is considerably slower than it is in the air that's your refractive index so so, how fast would the speed of light be in hyperspace? Right. When you say
0: that uh, they are coming into uh, of physical space, that means 3D, or if you say if time is the fourth dimension, it's a 4D world. Mm-hmm. But when they are doing like the fish, they are actually adding a dimension in a way, and that has to be the same thing happening here. Uh, you know, the classical uh, illustration for people is when you have a two-dimensional and you and you bend the the paper, and then uh, the two dimensional man can can go from one point to another.
1: Yeah, but see, that's notwithstanding the math of Kip Thorne's that tells you how much negative energy you need to fold physical space. But again, if what you're moving is 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 no longer in the realm of inertia, which is matter and mass energy, mm, mm. then you don't need to fold space time. Actually, you. You don't need, you You do need a burst of energy. And I, I think that's the purpose of the supermassive elements. I don't even know. To open the portal. To open the portal for a tiny fraction of a second. And there's this famous footage, 1966 footage from a, a British airliner, where you see this, this UFO with real structure. And I put it in many of my films. And it, it just, it seems to, it seems to just, shrink down in size and just take it's not accelerating mm. it it's actually shrinking down in size and vanishes mm. right mm. the ufo i saw in berkeley 1968 did just that we were all watching it for 20 minutes and there were so many people on the street that day I and mean, that was in in albany which is was kitty corner to berkeley where we lived mm. and this thing just it didn't accelerate like it just jumped Hmm. into this other dimension. And, and it didn't make any sound, right? Oh, no. Hmm. And, and so now it gets more amazing because there's one thing when I look, when I go frame by frame in the Navy footage, uh, there's 30 frames a second in video. I, and I, I look at this one frame. All, I don't see the craft anymore. I just see squiggly waveform lines, like frequency waves on an oscilloscope in one frame out of the 30. And then, in two other frames, the same UFO splits in two, and then it comes back together. Yeah, that's uh, that's a well-known phenomenon. It's weird. Yeah, go on. So that means it, it reminds me of the double slit experiment, where you can send right. the same electron through two slits at the same time, but it's the same electron. Yes.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: And and that the UFOs are doing that, and that immediately eliminates. Any hypothesis to me that these things are somehow the Chinese or the Russians? Because yeah, yeah, of course. That's childish. Let's let's not even go there. It's, it's a waste. Pure childish. childish. Yeah. And a, and a waste of time, in yeah. giving the Chinese and the Russians air superiority is actually a really stupid move <laughs> by our military. If anything, I would have bluffed and said, yeah, those are ours. <laughs> yeah. Scare the crap out of the Russians. But, it's not, but how
0: ours can you, we're talking private corporations, they know no identification, they know no loyalty. So it's not even ours. It's more like Dolan's breakaway civilization. But hmm. you're blowing my mind, as you always do when I listen to you. This is great. Uh, But uh, if you say that this is happening, shouldn't they also then, I mean, how can they uh, account for time? Because you cannot do this to move in space
1: like this without also moving in time. So, Well, that's not true because, again, time, I mean, I built this thing called a galaxy clock in the year 2000. When I discovered the vortex in these UFOs, it was months after... I had this vision in the middle of the day. I saw Nikola Tesla shining with light and two other angelic beings next to him mm-hmm. wearing white robes with golden cords. This is in the middle of the day. And he just flashed this vortex mathematical model in front of me. And I wrote it all down. Uh, and hang on. My-
0: that's, that's exactly the type of uh, way uh, Tesla himself
1: uh, incepted his ideas like this. Right. And And so when when i saw the vortex coming out of the black hole the mini black hole in the ufo on the on the tether incident i said i said i understand what's happening here because i understand that the element of time in my galaxy clock is not a measurement of time it's an actual fundamental force so when you when you understand that time what's called real time which is real wave peak time in the quantum world of measuring real, what are called real wave seconds versus a fictitious second. Mm-hmm. And then measuring everything in a, a nanosecond is a billionth of a second. A femtosecond is a quadrillionth of a second. Th- that's fictitious time. So that time is, is a dimension. But when you understand, like I do, that, that there is a time that is actually a force and that these things don't move through space, they move through time, I don't mean the same time that other people mean, and I found that all wave seconds on their quantum function as real time seconds versus fictitious time seconds, which is man made time, are in instantaneous bond with each other, and that's what builds the vortex in my galaxy clock model when. When you connect the bond of all the real time seconds on the on the wheels of my um, galaxy clock, it, it warps the fabric of space and that Ah uh, so it
0: would it, it would be like if you find the right octave. You can jump an octave, so to speak,
1: if you You're right. See yeah. th- you're not jumping on the on the light wave, because that travels at the speed of light. Right, but right. you're jumping on the time wave, and the time wave warps the fabric of space, which is the root cause of gravity. It's the cause of it. Right. And so when you understand the cause of the gravity, you don't need to fight it with element 115 and go the other way and repel it, mm. because that is too expensive and it's super massive. And you're going to cause severe damage, and yeah. we don't see any damage coming from these things. Mm. So that means if you understand that real time, quantum time, which is different than than fabricated time, because fabricated time means I'm going to invent something called a second, which closely resembles a human heart rate at – at rest Mm -hmm. and just like an inch is equal to the the end of your index finger you know the last joint on your index finger that's pretty much an inch depending on who you are so those are what we call seconds to measure time and fractions of a second going all the way down to femtoseconds is is fabricated time Mm -hmm. but the time i'm talking about is real quantum time and once you know how to access that force, that is the root cause. So let's say all the the real-time seconds are all bonded with each other. And that explains, again, three physicists just won the Nobel Prize for this, for, for quantum communication. Hmm. They actually won the Nobel Prize for something that was considered fictitious, and 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 this circumvents the speed of light limit and goes faster than light it doesn't just go faster than light it appears instantaneous and if all real-time quantum seconds are bonded that's entanglement and i know what it looks like it forms a vortex and that's what physically warps space which causes einstein's gravity to appear but in order to get out of the realm of gravity you have to know where real-time seconds actually are. And they're they're bonded, which is what you call entanglement. And that's how these things move. So this time becomes the plus
0: and the space becomes the minus then.
1: Right, so you don't fall into Einstein is chasing a light wave. So if I accelerate mass to ninety nine percent the speed of light, like they do in these in these particle collisions, mm. time slows down mm. and eventually it slows down so much, and you 're aging so much that basically you 're not really going any faster because you 're aging mm. and then eventually, when you both jump back and meet each other you 're already dead because you 've aged so much approaching the speed of light, and you actually haven 't got there any faster because time is slowing down see that doesn 't work mm. At all, that's not how they're doing it. They're not going faster than light, mm. in the sense of of jumping light. Mm. They're they're moving. They're not racing with the light. They're bypassing it, right? They're bypassing it because they're going through what is called quantum time. Mm. What I'm going to call quantum time, and it's in my galaxy clock. It's right there. Mm. And and when I when I came out with evidence, the case for NASA UFOs, and I I did the galaxy clock demonstration. I got so many alternative physicists writing me saying, you know, you really figured something out there. Some people thought I should win the Nobel Prize for it. <laughs> yeah. But I thought this is way ahead of everybody. Yeah, yeah. This is given to be my Nikola Tesla in a vision. So how could I have? I couldn't have figured it out myself. Well, I mean, it was given to me by him from the other dimension where he is now.
0: I mean, if it's real. What you have discovered then obviously it's a part of creation so what you're doing is understanding it that's your your contribution
1: right. well see the fact that the Nobel Prize was just won for this for quantum entanglement communication the first thing we're going to be able to do is start looking at radio waves for et signals mm. and we're going we're going to build technology and look at quantum waves which are instantaneous over distances and then we'll eventually get to the point of being able to physically move uh, an atomic structure through that quantum function circumventing the the idea of thrust right and the idea of fighting everything that you're moving through right and the fish under the water is a good analogy because the fish in the water to get to maui is going to wag his tail for a month. And the other guy is not going to wag his tail at all because he's <laughs> he's up in the air where everything's really lighter and you can yeah. move around much faster. Yeah.
0: It's an excellent metaphor, and I'd like to take your brain uh, from this thread and into spirituality, but we'll let that be in part two. I want to I wanna rewind to... Uh, I'm not done with the NASA footage. Mm. For those who haven't seen it, and for those who actually watches this on YouTube, Rumble, or the video platforms, I'll put that footage in, so you'll have it in the background while while you're listening to this conversation. But for you guys, who are only listening to this through audio, uh, the podcast, I mean, you have to understand that what we're talking about, if you haven't seen this footage, is I mean, it's incredible, man. It's like, we said Pac-Mans. It's like a million Pac-Mans. And it's always there. I've seen so many footages of this, yep. and um, I have to ask you, David, that um, when you see, First of all, I, I need to just know a basic fact. How far away from a planet is this tether? Is it just in the top of the atmosphere, in the stratosphere? Is that where it is?
1: No, it's according to the, the emails I got from... I still have all my original emails, by the way, in a folder in my, in my email account from Joseph Newth and Louis A. Frank. and For God's sake, take copies. Okay. Security copies. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure we were looking... It was very low orbit. I think we're looking in the um, ionosphere region. I'm I'm not 100% certain, because that's pretty old um, research that I did. I, I think the tether... Um, because you also have this mysterious region called the mesosphere. And the mesosphere gets us into this other case that i got involved with which was the taking out of the space shuttle columbia by some sort of space weapon and that right that involves the what's called the the ignorosphere um it, it's 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 cooptively named because it's a region of space that's too low for where the satellites hang out and and they're way out there. Some of them are over 20,000 miles away from Earth. But Yeah, but, but everything we're talking about is still under the Van Allen Belt, right? Yeah, I think what Newth told me in the letters is, according to him, space began at about 100 miles above the Earth. And the ignorosphere, uh, mesosphere, is around it's around 37 to 50 something miles. And it's a region of space where very strange phenomena occur that require more research. And And I think a lot of our UAPs are hanging out up there. Yeah. Some of them may be recharging their, their, their craft in the electric fields so that you get into the ionosphere belts. And um, let's see how, how high is the ionosphere? Um, I fear elevation. The, it's 50 to 400 miles, yeah. So, so that would mean that's where they were. Because from what I remember, Newth told me space starts at 100 miles above the Earth. So there's an electric charge all the way to 400 miles. So they were dragging the tether through the ionosphere. So they're way up there.
0: But where is the Van Allen belt in terms of measure?
1: Uh, Van Allen. Oh, that's way out there. Uh, Van Allen. Okay. So everything is in inside of that um, belt. Elevation is is about a thousand to eight thousand miles. Ah. Okay. And then you go to the ionosphere is below that. So, but is
0: there is there any air in this area?
1: No, no, no. There, see what happens? I skydive from thirty thousand feet, so I, I know a lot about what happens <laughs> to an organism. The higher up you go, first yeah. of all. The higher up you go, there's no pressure. So there's nothing holding your skin on your bones. Wow. And when you pass 15,000 feet, you're at the region where you need oxygen.
0: Right.
1: So before you jump from that high, we had to pre-breathe oxygen for a nitrogen, pure oxygen for an hour to get rid of the nitrogen and then in your body. And then you go up to 30,000 feet and you jump out. And you're going incredibly fast, 300 miles an hour in free fall. And uh, so you again, when you're when you're up where these UFOs are reported by the Navy you're up at 20,000 feet, your temperatures are really low. Mm -hmm. You're getting 30,000 feet. It can be minus 75 outside, depending on the time of the year. But I was only in that temperature for a minute (laughs) Mm because I'm dropping in. And when you hit the lower atmosphere, it's kind of like jumping into a lake. When I hit the lowest atmosphere, Mm. doing because traditional free fall is 120 miles an hour from 12,000 feet, which is where most skydivers are jumping. It's like jumping into a lake. You you enter sudden turbulence. Mm. So the higher up you go, the less air there is, and then eventually there's no pressure to hold your skin on your bones. And that's why you need a pressure. These pilots that go high altitude need a pressure suit to keep their skin on their bones mm. and and prevent their brain from exploding. And and that's why we pressurize cabins in commercial air flights because we're flying at thirty thousand feet. Mm. So when you get way up there, the temperature gets unbelievably cold. It's colder than minus two hundred degrees when you get way up. Wow. So that's. But, oh, wait a minute. That's Fahrenheit. How much is that? Yeah, but that's use? important because when, when they're arguing that there's, they're doing water dumps, you can't dump water out of the space shuttle because as soon as the valve opens, it freezes, and it's a very good argument. Like, how do you get rid of human waste? And And I studied the shuttle because there's this argument about ice crystals, and it's like, well... Apparently, the shuttle rarely will do an ice, a, a water dump, and because it can clog valves, the temperature at um, uh, where they're flying is, is immensely cold, and everything freezes instantaneously. In, mm. in a fraction of a second, anything with water, including human waste, is instantaneously frozen.
0: I just have to tell our European listeners, we're talking about 100, minus 129 Celsius. It's pretty cold.
1: Yeah, it depends on how far you go out there, right? right you know, deep right. space is minus 273. Jesus. So, again, there, when you think of something physically, like let's say we go to traditional propulsion and I'm doing the speed that I'm clocking these uh, UAPs. I mean, according to David Fravor, this UFO jumped 60 miles in a second. It's 216,000 miles an hour, which is an octave, of 432 by the way because 216 times 2 is 432 so that that interests me as well harmonically but let's say i'm accelerating and i'm getting i'm getting to a tenth the speed of light and a tenth the speed of light is possible with a nuclear fusion drive because i was in this conversation with earl van landingham when he was alive who became head of all space access and technology at nasa and earl told me that maglitch's helium three fusion reactor and in helium three is mostly found in moon dust and could produce eighteen MeV protons eighteen million electron volt protons that could send spacecraft up to a tenth the speed of light right yeah. and a tenth the speed of light is is uh so you take one eighty six on one hundred and eighty six thousand two hundred and eighty two miles per second right mm-hmm. divided by 10 and I get 18,628 miles per second times 60 seconds in a minute times 60 minutes in an hour, I'm at 67 million miles per hour, okay? Mm -hmm. So our UAPs don't come anywhere near that. But Earl's telling me this on the phone that that it's the potential – for helium-3 fusion, 18 MeV protons, so that's charged particle thrust. So I went back to Magwitch, my boss, and I said, this is what Earl's telling me, why NASA tried to get funding for your fusion drive is they wanted the thrust. And Earl told me that he was tired of the solar panels on the space station and low-energy experiments. They wanted more energy, so they wanted Magwitch's miniature cubic meter helium three fusion drive and we got turned down by nasa we we got turned we got turned down by by clinton actually and gore in congress to get our funding to finish Hmm. and the u.s air force at kirtland air force base in new mexico did super crate 2 studies proving that our next model was going to achieve a billion watts per per cubic meter and that we would have thrust beyond belief.
0: This tells me that they have it already in the black otherwise. Yeah, I
1: see, 67 yeah. million miles an hour is so far beyond the velocities on these UAPs that even a low miniature fusion drive would get you well within the realm of what they're talking about. It's just that you physically can't push a metal structure through the air envelope at those speeds, but you could in outer space Mm. because you don't have the pressure Mm, mm, mm. because, because the air envelope will incinerate anything going that fast, unless you jump out of physical space into hyperspace and come back in. Right. So, so our thrust and, and, and all the radar data I have from Kevin day and, and, and I've never been able to get my head in there with these guys, with Ryan Graves, with with david Fravar, with kevin day and 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 Alizondo, and let's do the math okay mm. so one day a cnn reporter called me up here and i told her this i said here's your problem none of none of the media have given us the performance data in comparison to our fastest missile so our fastest missile is the Minuteman? It'll do eighteen thousand miles an hour, and the Russian ICBM is slower than that by about fifteen hundred miles an hour, and Russia's hypersonic missiles are fast in the low envelope, uh, uh, where where they can do that in a low altitude. They can go seven thousand miles an hour, which isn't confirmed by anybody, mm-hmm. but that's what they claim. And so so when you when you look at 18,000 miles an hour and you look at the velocities on the radar data, we're talking at least 23,000 miles an hour. Now, we were going 24,000 miles on the Saturn V rockets per hour to the moon. So we can go that fast in space. We we were going 24,000 miles an hour at Saturn V to the moon, but Mm. not down here. Mm. Right. You Mm. can't. You can't go in the air envelope that fast without incinerating. So if fusion drives – and this is Earl Van Lenningham, the director of all propulsion, power, and energy at NASA, telling me this. that Ma- And so I go back to Magwitch because this is the point I need to finish. And Magwitch says, well, Earl's right, but that would be very slow acceleration because, because helium um, – Helium protons are very light weight, so they're not going to give you a lot of quick thrust. But he said if we did heavy ion propulsion, meaning uranium ions or something like Bob Azar is talking about element 115 ions, mm. an ion is an atom with a net negative or positive charge on it, whereas most atoms are net neutral. So the positive and negative balance each other out. Yeah, yeah. So an ion is a net negative or positive charge. And if, if element 115 ions, which are the size of an atom, only exist for a fraction of a second, you're going incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. But you don't need that. You, There may be another way to use nuclear heavy materials, like even a tungsten ion is going to be very heavy, very, very massive thrust. But that's ion thrust. And ion thrust... See, all the ideas right now out there on ion thrusters are lightweight ions. And that means you can build a small craft and you can can have slow acceleration to get incredibly fast. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Let's say you're heading for a rock. You want to turn. Mm. But the G-forces on the turn are going to destroy you. (laughs) You can't turn at that speed. No, and, and again, another reason why that's how they're not doing it. They're because not doing because
0: it. these UAPs are turning at an angle like
1: that. They're turning, and you can't turn if you're massive, without the curvature and the g-force on the turn completely annihilating you. So, so again, nothing can go that fast and turn at all. But how how are the UAPs doing it? Well, that's what I mean. Well, going back to my meeting with seaborg at the Berkeley lab he's saying once you cancel out inertia and gravity mm. and gravity is formed by the curvature of space time which is and the curvature of space-time is formed by by real quantum time which is which is the bond on on action at a distance quantum the quantum um, entanglement bond causes the curvature of space time. And I can prove this mathematically. I can Mm. It's just that, you know, the, the physicists today that that are coming out of the schools who are getting the jobs, they're juniors. Mm. I mean, I hung around Seaborg and Gelman and Rostocker and I got to have these, these lessons with Earl Van Landingham. He's not alive. You even interviewed you interviewed this skunk walk guy, didn't
0: you? What's his name again?
1: Yeah, Boyd Bushman. is. Uh, <laughs> that was you, wasn't it? Yeah, Boyd. And I, I have in my possession not only the full tape from the original interview, but I did a second interview that I never released. Mm. And I tried to go to a film company like 1091 and ask them, do you guys want to do a film on Boyd Bushman? Because I have the original, original interview and i have the photographs of the alien and nobody even gets back to me like and that's what i mean ufology has gotten nasty and competitive nobody yeah, you just have to avoid the mainstream corporate media no they, these people don't like me and they're they're knocking me out of position on purpose yeah i used to be fox news number one guy when in L.A., when Bob Tarlow needed a UFO piece done, he'd call David Street. I'd go down to Fox Studio, and we'd do a piece on Roswell or some UFO sighting. And then and then I was—I did the film with Dan Aykroyd on on UFOs and got on Anderson Cooper. And I was on, of course, Art Bell as a regular guest. And, yeah. and amazing stuff happened when I went on Art Bell because I'm on Art Bell with this James Oberg, who is a press correspondent for NASA. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, he's been off to Hoagland, too. He's a debunker.
1: I know. And him and I were fighting, and the whole <laughs> show shut down worldwide. Wow. And the next day, RFL bell says, with 35 million listeners back then, yeah, yeah. he said, David Sarita was naming names and people at NASA that are not good for the country this time, and we had to shut down your show to 35 million people. I was in the the second biggest conspiracy in the history of Art Bell, and the first one was the Area Fifty One caller.
0: Right, oh yeah, yeah, he's legendary. But we pressed for time, and I, I, I still want to. Yeah, yeah. uh, so back to the NASA UFO. So here's the thing: when you see this footage, it looks like fish in an aquarium. It just, and I, you keep referring to them as vehicles, but to me, intuitively, it seems like they're organic somehow. It, it seems like it's life. They
1: really could be organic. They really could be living, massive, interplanetary stellar organisms that we don't know about. I'm not even convinced that the Tic Tacs could not possibly fall in the same category as some living thing. And the reason Mm. I believe that is, one, imagine if you're a true extraterrestrial and you discover this planet Earth wouldn't want you want to park and get out and say, hi, we're here. These things don't even communicate with our radio networks. They don't seem to be acknowledging us us in any way. And that's what fish do. Mm. I mean, fish under the water don't care about you.
0: That could also be the reason uh, our powers that be are so cocky towards them, that they know they are not posing a threat.
1: They're not posing a threat. They're doing. They're going about their business, yeah. and uh, we don't have proof that there's even an occupant. They could be alive. Hmm. They could be.
0: And that could also explain. You know, Jacques Vallée looks at some hypothesis that they are a part of a natural system. That could be why they are uh, concerned with uh, nuclear sites and stuff because they have a function in in terms of keeping the ecosystem going.
1: Well, exactly. Just like a turtle has a function and a whale has a function, but they're not interested in us, per mm. se. Like, mm. You know, turtles don't come out of the water and say, hi, I'm a turtle. <laughs> right. But, and these things aren't coming out of the sky saying, hi, I'm an alien from the planet Krypton. Or- you know, if, if there wasn't so many of them,
0: I could buy I uh,
1: buy into, but it's
0: just too many. But that said, it's not necessarily an either or, right? Right. There could be some vehicles. Yeah, I, I haven't rolled I out. Mean, we, we, we do see some UAPs really looking like metallic vehicles.
1: Oh, I know. The one I saw was metallic, and I believe it was tungsten in, in, in 1968. Right. I've, I've matched the metal sample, and I, I think I know why. I mean, when you when we come back, I could go into my latest theories on how these things actually work.
0: Let, let's do that when we come back in part two. And also, I want to pick your brain about the stuff you're into these days, which is to do with acoustics and music. Yeah. Uh, but just you one quick question about this. Yeah. You know, Hoagland talks about how the ancients may have... Uh, reach the stars so couldn't some of these be our cousins like the ancient space program
1: well see here's what I say if if somebody's coming back to visit us from the future then we're not in the real time universe <laughs> we're we're trapped in time and and that's a, that's a hypothesis that I take very seriously because I believe from my galaxy clock that they're moving through quantum time which is not the same. As human-made seconds and minutes and et cetera, but I'll give you something really shocking. So, I was on Holguin last weekend, Mm -hmm. and we were talking, and he said that the the current mission, which we're following, Artemis to the Moon, they lost contact with Artemis. This is really mind-blowing. This is what I'm talking about. It's on my Facebook, so I'm just going to go pull up my notes here. This is so freaking mind-blowing what happened. So we lost contact with the spacecraft for 47 minutes, which equals 2,820 seconds. If you divide that by 360 degrees, which is a planetary circular orbit, it equals 7.83. The Tesla. Ah, That's Fogland's favorite number, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> that's the tesla schumann resonance yeah. so what does that mean did et's turn off the communication with with the orion spacecraft in artemis 1's mission and they left us a code that proves that this isn't just a random amount of time that we turned off your communication mm. because it was exactly 47 minutes according to hoagland so i decoded this because mm. my head is full of numbers and frequencies yeah. millions of them yeah but when you explain the travel,
0: you know, you mentioned the cosmic clock and and you're talking about that we're not following the Einsteinian passing the speed of light. Mm-hmm. Then you made a case for how they could move in space without moving in time. Otherwise, they would have to move in both, right? But if that is true, if this tech or this uh, nature phenomenon, whatever it is, mm-hmm. or or if we emulate them with tech... And we manage to travel in space without traveling time. Couldn't we also do the opposite? Couldn't we
1: also travel in time without traveling space? Well, that's how I think they're really doing it. Again, there's real quantum time as opposed to fabricated time because what we call a second is a fabrication.
0: Mm.
1: And when the galaxy clock measures real quantum time. And real quantum time... Is bonded through this phenomenon called action at a distance, which three physicists just won the Nobel Prize for, which is a massive breakthrough in the, in the world of classical physics for them to break yeah. to win the Nobel Prize for action at a distance, which is instantaneous faster than light signaling mm-hmm. and may become instantaneous faster than light teleportation one day of physical um, physical craft then you you get into a whole new possibility to explain the UAP UFO phenomenon. Mm. Like that you can you can physically go anywhere. But see, let's just say that this is a really a real conundrum. Once you experience true supreme high frequency bliss in your nervous system and in your energy field, it's actually so spectacular everywhere you go that the desire to travel as some form of entertainment becomes less and less interesting because it's so mind-blowing actually everywhere you are all the time. And and for very advanced beings, I think that's one of the reasons they send the AI scouts to search for minerals and maybe precious gems or things like that that may have certain um, technological Properties, but the, the the more evolved you get, the less interested you become in in physical based pleasures, mm. which you might you know you might send a scout ship to go get some really rare plant in another planet that has a certain ingredient in it that gets you high, right, or something mm. like that. Because you read Graham Hancock, mm. it's all about getting high and raising consciousness, whether the techniques are done naturally or through plant-based chemistry based but once a person can sustain themselves in these high frequency states what i'm saying is the the desire for sensation physical based pleasure gets less and less and less and then you become a super being and then you're not interested in mining for this element over here <laughs> and that element over there. And so what what are they doing? Right. Well, they're not going to be interested in us because just look at us. Well, they may be interested in their consciousness, but actually they may be look,
0: we know two interesting things. We know number 1 mm-hmm. that they started popping up in mass after our first nuclear test explosions. That's number 1. Number 2, we also know that they're interested in nuclear sites. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking Okay. We may have had, uh, had, uh, these phenomenons here all the time, but this increased this enormous mass of them, right? According to statistics and according to some footage, could it be that they, uh, that we have opened some kind of portal inadvertently and they are spilling in here from that?
1: Well, yeah. I, I said this on Art Bell way back in the day of mm-hmm. Art Bell that when, when we detonated the first atomic bomb at Trinity, New Mexico, July, 22nd, 1945, the Roswell crash, actually three crashes appeared all around Trinity in that same period only two years later. So so you have all these UFO crashes around the Trinity experiment. So obviously, a time dilation portal opened up with the intense uh, flash of gamma radiation is probably what did it and then we saw the effects of that 2 years later in within a certain radius around the the incident of the atomic testing so every time we started testing atomic bombs we were opening portals and they knew it they knew that there was there was a problem going on with uh, us distorting the the natural Or the portals, there are some portals, I think, that are actually maintained. Here, I'll give you an example. So in this Navy pilot testimony, we have Kevin Day, the radar operator, giving us the latitude and longitude of where these UAPs disappeared on the radar. Just There's two things. It's really amazing. Because the radar data shows the UAPs disappearing somewhere around the, the south end, of Guadalupe Island off the coast of Baja and yet they detected a magnetic anomaly to the north of the north end of the island and the the lat- the north latitude of the great pyramid of Egypt which is the same as the speed of light in in digital when you convert degrees minutes and seconds to 10 base it's 29 mm-hmm. 29 29 it's like 299 792 458 meters per second in meters per second. So the north latitude of the Great Pyramid comes just north of the north end of Guadalupe Island where the magnetic anomaly was detected. So that would mean and the UFOs disappeared on radar, the question is is how accurate the the disappearing point is, because the disappearing point is actually south of there, but it's within the within the same latitudinal region of the great pyramid of egypt because we have a magnetic anomaly to the north end of the island which is very close to the the north latitude of the great pyramid of egypt and here's another thing if you go to skinwalker ranch and the people watching skinwalker ranch don't know this because i figured it out if you go to the north latitude of mount olympus in greece which i think is another portal Mm -hmm. It lies within a quarter of a degree of Skinwalker Ranch. If you go all the way around the planet like a ring, mm. you're at Skinwalker Ranch within a quarter of a degree. Now, all the phenomenon at Skinwalker Ranch happen within a quarter of a degree. A degree is like 69 miles, right? So you look at 69 miles divided by 4 is only 17 miles, right? So 17 and a quarter miles is is not very far so 17 miles in kilometers we will be talking times 1.6 times okay 1, 30, 6. 30. it's actually 27.6 okay. kilometers mm. so you're within that band around the planet on these two incidences right you have the, the phenomenon skinwalker ranch and and the the mount olympus in greece on the same band right within a quarter of a degree in Mm -hmm. width Mm -hmm. and you have the same phenomenon of the ufos disappearing at guadalupe island uh, within the same thickness of a band going all the way, around, lining up with the great, point.
0: I have another coordinate, coordinate for you. Uh, you should look up Hasdal in Norway. It's a completely significant place. Almost no people living there. But since the, uh, actually for hundreds of years, but at least since the 80s, there was a huge UFO flap there, okay. which led to the first and only, as far as I know, the first and only wide open scientific investigation of UFOs, which has been going on now. Oh, yeah, I think. Yeah, even Dr. Hynek was there. And I just interviewed the scientist. What's it called again? I'm going to. Has, has, What's it called it's called Project Hastal. And what they have found about UFOs are mind blowing. For example, they find what you told us that they split up. And then they come together again. No explanation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They find that they are metallic, that they are lights, that they are making no sound, that they can lift stuff. They have all phenomena from all over the world in one place. That's the special thing about Hastal. You have all types of UAPs phenomenons in the one and same place. Okay. Even classical stuff like discs. and uh, And the interesting stuff, they're interacting with them. They're taking laser, you know, these lasers that you use to play with cats or whatever. Mm-hmm. So people reported that, uh, if they flashed their car lights on them, they would disappear. They'd like vanish. Now they tried laser. What happens is that they change their pulsation because they have a specific pulsation rate. Right. And when you poke them with a laser, they start pulsating faster. Now this is just one of million things they found out by research. You should totally look into it because these people. I think
1: I've seen a film about this. It was done. Yeah, there's many
0: documentaries about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So those so people think that's a portal, and they have no idea why it opened and why it flushed out thousands of UFOs in the eighties, and after the eighties, it has slowed down. But they have uh, uh, real time cameras there all the time; you can see online, and they have tons of footage. And this is in the open; it's white, long before America finally acknowledged UAPs. Yeah. So uh, we we have data about them.
1: I'd have to look at I see the latitude and longitude on Google Earth right now where that yeah. is I'd have to do some research on it for you and see do it it's going to be interesting I'm looking at Hastal in uh, on Google Earth right now, but i don't i don't know where in there exactly would be a very sacred spot
0: oh they have uh they measured the area it's actually you know the u f o s aren't using maps, so it's actually spilling to the neighbor commune but they have the area for where it's, it seems that they are just so st- if I got an
1: exact point where these UFOs seem to be coming in and out of and it can be accurate within even a few miles and then you'll make it because uh, uh, there is this rift you make it. yeah there is this rift your, when your energetic body goes there you'll get to see what it's all about and right. as long as you know how to dream lucidly as long as you know how to keep your consciousness slightly awake, mm. you, you'll have an experience working with the frequencies of that. Let's, uh, let's turn to the uh, bodies very soon,
0: because we had a whole show about the light bodies. I want to pick your brain about it. But last, we'll uh, we'll, we'll take, take a break, a break, break now. So, so, thanks a lot for, for part one. and we come back, okay, we're okay. going to go even further down the rabbit hole. All right. All right. Bam, bam. bam. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paper link on our webpage. Thanks.